Whoa, I got lost on the stage there. Too long with my eyes closed. <laughs> well, good morning, everybody. I'm, I'm really glad that you're with us uh, today on this rainy sort of day. You know, this magical thing happened. Now, this isn't a huge secret to everybody, to those who are close to me. I'm not a super fan of the marmots at the church, but re recently I have kind of just given up all control over that situation. And I've just said, you know, it's probably easier just to shovel their poop off to the sidewalks again than it is any other sort of means of interference with those marmots. But this morning I drove up to the church and I love bluebirds. And this morning I realized that there is a nest of bluebirds that are nesting inside of the edge of our roof, which is probably not the greatest thing in the world, but it is the greatest thing in the world because they're bluebirds. And Who's going to fight with bluebirds? A whole nest of happy bluebirds. And I get to see them on the railing in the morning. And this morning, the bluebird did something really cool. It went over and harassed the living daylights out of the marmots. So we're sitting there. there the marmot was just sitting there kind of doing its thing, trying to stay warm. And this bluebird's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? I thought, you know what? It's cool. God's got this whole thing under control. I don't have to care about it. The bluebirds are taking over for me. Okay, so this morning I'm going to try something a little bit different. I'm going to try and get my video up here. I don't know if this is going to work. Is it working, Tim? Oh, it is. Okay, there's that. Okay, now I've got to figure out how to bring this thing over. Pardon me while this... I don't know. Oh, there it is. Okay, I just have a little bit of a video to show you this morning. I couldn't figure out any other way to do this, so bear with me. We're just going to watch part of this. This is a movie... A little music video by Langhorn Slim. I'm not condoning all of his music, but this, I think, speaks to it this morning. So here we go. another oh 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 oh, oh. <laughs> so the refrain of that song life is confusing people are insane was really resonating this week with me now how do i get this back away from here okay all right this is gonna work out okay hopefully good good yeah so that refrain was just kind of pumping through my brain as i was preparing this sermon Life is confusing and people are insane. It's super relatable. I mean, this is true for all of us. And it's probably because of the very fact that life is confusing and people are insane that simple has become the sort of buzzword of our, of our lifestyle magazines, of our culture. It's like everybody's writing, searching, and looking for simple. 
It's everywhere. It's the magazine Real Simple, Simple Living, The Art of Simple, Simple.com, and the list goes on and on and on. If you just type in Simple into Google, you get like blogs and web pages and Instagram, and everything is simple, 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 because life is confusing and people are insane, and we need it. And I've always admired people who can live in the same world that I live in and just not have terribly complicated lives for it. Like, how do, you, how do you do that exactly? How do you live in this complicated, confusing, twisty, turny world where life is confusing and people are insane and just live simply? We need the answer. And I had a buddy, my buddy Dale, and he was a lot like that. I always admired that about him. He wasn't like one of these like real complicated guys. He didn't have like a quick wit and he wasn't like looking to like, you know, get into political this or that. He was just simple and a not mean way of saying it. He had God-honoring goals, and he pushed hard in that direction. It was just what he was about. He wasn't prone to distractions. He hated gossip, and he generally lived a very uncomplicated life for it that I really admired and longed for myself. When he was in his mid-20s, a lot of you know this. I talk about Dalen some. Dalen was killed in a plane crash, and we ended up naming our son after him. But he was, in that time, preparing his life as a, as a missionary pilot. Now, I still remember there was an excerpt from his journal that was shared at his funeral. And in it, Dalen had asked God to help him make the most of every opportunity, knowing that, as the author of Ephesians puts it, that the days are evil. Dalen lived an uncomplicated life in the, in the same complicated and confusing world that the rest of us lived in. He, he lived in the same world that I lived in, the same life is confusing, people are insane world. What Dalen was praying for was wisdom, ultimately. The whole verse from Ephesians goes like this. This is in Ephesians 5.15. Let's see if I can make this thing work now. Can I make it advance? How do I do it? Anybody know? Oh, yeah. Sorry, guys. This is me playing with technology. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, Ephesians 5.15-17. And it goes like this. It says, Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. The wise path is the path which seeks to understand what the Lord's will is, according to Ephesians 5.15. And by comparison, it is a much simpler way through a complicated life than if we were left to our own devices. But notice that the days are evil. Life is not simple. Life is still the confusing thing. It's just a simpler path to a confusing life. But how do we do this? The Bible is clear that wisdom is available to us, but how do we obtain it? If there's a simpler way to parent or to navigate the complicated dynamics at work or to build into a healthy marriage, I want it. I want to know what the simple path is. We all do. All of these present us with what Paul calls the opportunities to make the most of every opportunity, he says. And these are our opportunities. I remember as a young man, I would read through the book of Proverbs, and I really just really wanted wisdom above all else because it was like, well, here's what the Bible says. It says, pursue this thing. This is going to be good for you. So oh, I'm going to do this in my 12-year-old way. And brilliantly, God can give wisdom to very young people, to very uneducated people, to not very smart people. Now today we're going to look at Genesis chapter 39, so you can put your thumb in that passage if you want to, and we're going to travel alongside of Joseph as he wisely negotiates his path through a very complicated 
world through a very complicated situation. But before we do that, I want to spend a few minutes looking at a few of the passages in the book of Proverbs, which is some of the most famous wisdom literature in the Bible, written by King Solomon. I'm going to jump around a little bit, but all of it comes from the first section of Proverbs chapter 16. So you can put another thumb there. You're going to run out of thumbs pretty quick, but for right now we're going between Proverbs and Genesis 39. So first to Proverbs. And this chapter 16 deals in particular with how we as uh, you know, us mortals can sort of regain the simplicity that we so desire. This morning, I want these Proverbs to serve as a backdrop for Joseph's story, which will help us to understand how he makes the choices that he makes or what's going on kind of behind the scenes inside of his mind. The first proverb is from Proverbs 16, verse 3, where King Solomon says, Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. That's a good verse. I, I once inscribed it on a walking stick, and I, I gave it to a, big, a good friend of mine. And as I was making a big change in my own life, as I was moving on to other things, he gave me that stick back. And it says, commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. Now, it seems simple enough. But what does it mean to commit your actions to the Lord? One of the first things we have to learn when approaching wisdom literature is that wisdom is portrayed often as being something that is fundamentally outside of us. It is beyond us. It is out of our hands. We don't get to originate wisdom. We may find it or discover it, but it never originates within us. Just prior to this verse in chapter 16.3 and chapter 16.2, Solomon reminds us that we lack the perspective to see life clearly. This capacity is reserved for God alone. He says, all one's ways may be pure in one's own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. That makes sense? We don't have the perspective that we need. All one's ways may be pure in one's own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. We don't have the ability to do that. Once again, in Proverbs 16, 9, this theme is reiterated. When Solomon says, the human mind plans the way, but the Lord directs the step. You see, he's establishing this theme, this, this thing that's happening. He's trying to bring it into our heads and help us to understand what exactly is going on? There is something about wisdom and the path of righteousness which is fundamentally beyond us. We are dependent upon God to both find and walk on the path that wisdom lays. We need him for it. We can't, we can't discover that ourselves. No human knowledge is going to be able to, to make this easy for us. Finally, Solomon concludes this passage reminding us who the standard of measure is. Unlike wisdom, we do have the ability to measure knowledge. Knowledge is this relative thing, right? We can take IQ tests that can give us a score of how we compare relative to whatever, the rest of humanity or something like that. Albert Einstein, I think, is a, a common comparison for people. But the standard for wisdom is not relative in the same way. In Proverbs 16, 11, God is set up as the gold standard of measurement. His opinion on the matter is the only opinion that matters. Solomon reminds us, honest balances and scales are the Lord's. All the weights, all the weights in the bag are his work. That's Proverbs 16, 11. Now, I want you guys, I mean, I'm sure you're all familiar with this. I put this up just for ease of reference, but all the weights in the bag are the Lord. Back in the day, you guys all know this, but weights and balances were how commerce happened. The assumption behind a fair deal was that these 
these rates, these weights were standardized, that there was something about them that was that was honest and dependable and reliable and true. There was a standard image for it. So there was, example, if you were to sell barley by the pound, your one pound weight sat on one side of the scale and then you poured barley onto the other side until the scale balances in the middle, right? But what if that one pound weight that was labeled one pound actually only weighed, say, nine-tenths of a pound, right? So you have it labeled one pound, but it's just under a pound, actually. So then when you're pouring barley on, it's going to meet in the middle at just under a pound. But it's going to look, for all intents and purposes, like it's a pound of barley. So what actually happens then is the customer who thought they were buying a pound of barley would, in fact, only walk away with nine-tenths of a pound of barley. Now, this was a common kind of fraud back in the days of weights and measures and scales like that, and it's clearly bad business. What Solomon is saying when he says, honest balances and scales are the Lord's, all the weights in the bag are his work, he's saying that God alone can set that standard. God alone has a trustworthy system of measurement. God alone has a standard by which everything will be measured against that will say, is this true? Well, let's bring it to the gold standard of God's measurement. All the weights are in his bag. He alone can tell us if this thing is true, accurate, or right. So that's a big deal. It's a big deal for, for all of us as we approach how we think about God and how we think about wisdom. We come before God with our lives, and then he alone tells us if we have acted wisely or not. God's not going to use our system of weights and measurement to determine anything. We all walk around with this. We all walk around with how we value or how we determine the value or rightness or wrongness of our actions. And we can start to put these, these weights into our own bag. And we can say, well, relative to my own system and way of thinking, I'm acting well. I'm making a good decision. And then we judge other people based on our own standards of weights and measures, right? What God is saying here is that one day, those aren't going to matter. We're all going to respond. We're all going to answer to God's standard of weights and measures. Now, this is not a popular thing to talk about in our world today. The cultural climate in Canada is not one that says there is one standard. There is one objective truth that we are all going to respond to. And yet that's what the Bible is saying. So don't, don't take it from me. That's what's in here. That's what the Bible is saying. So you get to choose if you want to listen to that or not. I'm not going to force anybody to do that. Wisdom is not relative. Not at least relative to our own system. Wisdom is relative to God. God alone gets to determine if we have acted wisely or not. If we're living our lives expecting that God is going to want us to one day use our own bag of weights and measures, we're wrong. I talk to a lot of people that think, they're going to be able to go stand before God and just make a case for how they live their life. So, well, I'll take it up with him then. You know, I'll say, well, I had a really hard situation here, so I, I made these kinds of choices. What God is offering is to give us a way to make those choices. He's giving us a standard of weights and measures to help us along that path. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but that's a that's a bad assumption. It's a bad assumption in life if we're going to take Proverbs 16:11 seriously. The unescapable reality, the point. Solomon is trying to make is that a straight path exists. But if we are going to find it, much less walk on it, we have to first go to the one who holds the balances and scales, the one who has all the weights in his bag, or we will simply be guessing. And that path is a curvy and confusing path. Life is confusing. People are insane. 
So I want you to keep this image of God and his bag of weights and measures in mind as we look at and evaluate the life of Joseph and the choices that he's making this morning. Okay, so now you can open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 39. It's toward the, the end of the first book of the Bible. I don't even have my Bible up here, and I've got to get one. Otherwise, I won't be able to read it. Sorry. Let me just grab a Bible. I'm always forgetting something. I remembered PowerPoint, but I forgot the Bible. That's unforgivable. Get a new pastor. Okay. Back in Genesis chapter 39. Thanks, Tim. Okay, so if you have been here for the last couple of weeks, you're going to remember that Joseph is the younger of 11 brothers and that those 11 brothers really don't like Joseph very much. God gave Joseph this series of dreams and then Joseph in his own sort of determination of wisdom. So I'm going to just go ahead and tell my 11 brothers about how they're all going to bow down and worship me in the future. Now, when he shared those dreams with his brothers, they were provoked into selling Joseph into slavery as a relatively ethical alternative to just killing him outright leaving him abandoned in a dry well. So our story today picks up where Genesis 37 left off. Joseph is sold to the Midianites that day in the field, and when they arrive later in Egypt, they sell Joseph as a slave to a man of considerable status and influence, Potiphar. And he's the captain of the guard, and he's just right under Pharaoh. So he's a big deal in Egypt. Joseph's life is already anything but simple. But from this point forward, it's actually going to take on a number of new twists and turns, curves and confusion. Life is confusing and people are insane would define this part of Joseph's life, for sure, if not pretty much all of it. Surprisingly, his life seems actually to improve when he's sold into slavery. So if you'll read with me, this is Genesis chapter 39. We're in verse 2 and we're going to read to verse Six together. It says, The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except for the food that he ate. That's a pretty good deal. Potiphar is doing well. Joseph is doing well. Now, as, like, as unlikely, rather, as it seems for a Hebrew slave to rise to a place of such prominence in Egypt, and that's not an easy thing to do. Joseph does exactly that. Potiphar entrusted everything that he owned to Joseph. Clearly God was bent on making Joseph's life, for whatever reason, really good. Despite all of these negative circumstances that his brothers were throwing at him or his family was throwing at him, God had decided to make Joseph's life really good. Now, if the story stopped right here, we might be left feeling a little bit like God doesn't quite like us as much as he likes Joseph. Why does God treat Joseph so well? And again, we have this sort of favoritism that springs upon Joseph, and we start to feel a little bit like his brothers. After all, God didn't just lay a straight path for Joseph to walk on. He bulldozed the shortcut to success for Joseph that shouldn't have happened any other way. I mean, it was like direct access to success. Now, this is 
these are the kind of verses that the prosperity gospel, which is not accurate reflection of how God deals with humanity, is built on this kind of stuff. 39.3 shows very plainly that it wasn't so much that Joseph worked hard to earn what Potiphar had gave him, but that instead, quote, the Lord gave him success in everything he did. It was just a gift from God. He just sh shortcutted him right up to success. And this is where we begin to feel that jealousy and resentment of the older brothers start to creep back into our own hearts. If we stop the story here, we're left with the message that if we want to be loved by God in the way that Joseph is, we're just going to have to try a little bit harder. We're going to have to be a little bit better people. Try to be good like Joseph was good. But the story, thankfully, doesn't stop here. And that's not what the story is about. The story shows us quite plainly what it looks like to be with God both in our successes and our failures. What we're meant to see in this first sort of chapter of Joseph's time in Potiphar's house is his reliance on God and his relationship with God, which was evident to everybody that he encountered. Now, if you've ever seen the, 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 the Prince of Egypt, the cartoon, or if you've ever seen Charlton Heston's The Ten Commandments, you'll understand that Egypt has not always been so accommodating of God's people and, and that this relationship would turn pretty sour. And the same things that divide Egypt and God's people at that later point in history are already dividing them. They, there's this one true God thing that Joseph has that Egypt does not share. It's a, it's a fundamental different ideology of life, and, it, and it's an issue. Yet even in his diminished standing as a slave serving under this very prominent person in Egypt, Joseph's reliance on God is not something that he's hiding. Not even from the captain of the guard. Notice again in verse 3 what Potiphar sees in Joseph that causes him to promote Joseph. It says, When Potiphar saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. And we do well to remember that Joseph clearly knows something. God holds all the weights in his bag. Joseph could have resented God for allowing him to be sold into slavery. He could have started living according to his own weights and measures, going, this isn't what I signed up for. I'd like, I'd like a new set of weights and measures to, to standardize my life off of. But Joseph doesn't do that. Joseph knows that he is still ultimately going to answer to God for the life that he lives and how he responds to each of these situations. And he trusts God in the midst of these trying times. Not because Joseph is a good person, so much as because Joseph knows that God is trustworthy, that his character is unchanging. And that's a big deal. Just like the weights that God uses are still a, a reliable standard, even when, and especially when, life's circumstances are all over the place. When life is confusing and people are insane, God is the same God. He's got the same, same standard of weights and measures that are guiding Joseph into these new circumstances. Now, Joseph has accepted something about God most of us find hard to accept. Joseph has accepted why God holds the weights and measures. How we answer that question reflects something upon the sort of motivations of our own hearts, right? Here's a spoiler. God doesn't hold those so that he can tip the scales in our favor. That's not the reason that God is the God of all the weights and measures in the bag so that he can tip the scales in our favor and, and make life good for us. That's not what's happening. 
what it means is that God, that the scales essentially are tipped forever in God's favor, and that we are do well to align ourselves with that, right? We need someone to pray to when times get tough, and so we think, hmm, I need, I need a little bit of the weight that he's got. I need somebody that's going to tip the scales for me, right? This is, this is a really common thing for us. Most of us are interested in having God on our side more than being on God's side, right? Our grip on life starts to slip, and so we think it's wise. Maybe I should just draft, try and draft God onto my team. But that's not how it works. God has all the weights. Not most of the weights or some of the weights. God has all the weights. And the only win that Joseph cares about is God's win. And God is going to keep on winning. That's a, there's a straight path that Joseph knows exists. And it has to do with what God is doing with his plan. right? Just like Ephesians says. like This is seeking to understand the Lord's will is that path to wisdom. right? Acting as wise. Taking advantage of every opportunity. And so seek to understand his will. And that's what Joseph is doing here. God will win when Joseph is the favorite son and the despised brother. God's going to win when Joseph is a slave in Egypt. God is bigger than Joseph's circumstances. And he is able to advance his own cause regardless of what's happening to Joseph. You can start to see and appreciate the straight path that's being carved through. Life is confusing and people are insane. There is this straight path that God is paving through all of that. And it's good for Joseph to realize this because the material success that he's been enjoying is about to evaporate. The story continues in chapter 39, verses 6 to 20. You can join me there. So it says, Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. Of course he was, right? And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph, and he said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. And then listen to this logical jump. I feel like it's a logical jump that he's making. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? So he tells her all about what Potiphar has done for him and all that Potiphar has given him and all that is happening there. And then he says, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand, and he ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she told them, this Hebrew has been brought here to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. And then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. At the very pinnacle of his success, Joseph is tossed out in this, in this blatant miscarriage of justice. 
Now Joseph, he did have a choice. He had a choice in this situation, did he not? He didn't have to choose what he chose to do. He didn't have to deny the advances of Potiphar's wife. So what enabled Joseph to make the choice that he did? What, what path did he see? How did he stay in that decision? It's interesting to me. When Potiphar's wife first solicits him, he refuses her in verse 9, citing first the kindness and generosity of his master. Right? He says, my master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. And then he finishes that thought with what appears to be a disconnected thought. How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And again, we see that above everything, Joseph recognizes the supremacy of God. Joseph sees that straight path. He sees that all of these things that are happening to him, the life is confusing. People aren't saying, yes, my master's been good to me. All of these things are happening. You're trying to solicit me for sex and this confusing, whatever. But all of it is as unto the Lord. If he were to sin against Potiphar, his first and ultimate sin would be against God. And in the same way that every sin is first and foremost a sin against God, every good thing that Joseph has experienced, even from Potiphar, is viewed by Joseph dominantly as the goodness and graciousness of God. It is God's kindness toward Joseph and his love for him that prevents Joseph from sinning and allows him to willingly turn away. Not only from Potiphar's wife, but from the life and the success that he has built up for himself, that God has given him in Potiphar's house. That success is not holding him captive. He is not a slave to that because he sees the giver behind the gift. Because he sees that to sin against Potiphar, to abuse the generosity and goodness of what Potiphar has shown him would be to abuse the generosity and the goodness of his own Savior. And he's not willing to do that. Now, this is interesting to me. Because the way that we motivate our good actions, the way that we motivate these things, I think if we were in this situation, we, we might think, okay, so Potiphar's, Potiphar's wife is, is making this offer, right? So I say yes to it, then whatever. I'm going to have stuck in this crazy affair with the wife of my boss, and it's going to get tangled and confusing, and people are insane and whatever. I'm going to say no to that. Why Why would most of us say no to that? We would say, what Potiphar's wife can do to Joseph is nothing compared to what God could do to him, to the one who holds all of the weights and measures in his bag. There is nothing that can compare to that. And so we are motivated by, by fear of God to obey God, to, to stick to the straight and narrow, as it were. But that's not what Joseph is doing. It's because God has given him a vastly better offer that far outweighs anything Potiphar's wife can offer. That's what makes it possible for Joseph to accept this fate. He knows he's losing all of this stuff. He's giving up all of the success that he's built because God's given him something so much greater than that. Because he has a relationship with the giver of good gifts. And so he responds, how then, considering all of the generosity of God, could I do such a wicked thing and sin against my Lord? How could I? It's an impossibility for Joseph, not because of a fear that's struck down inside of him, but because of the goodness and graciousness of God, because of the love of God that he has shown to Joseph. And I think that is a radical mind shift that we need to get our head around when we think about the straight and narrow. How, do we, how are we motivated to stay on this path? The straight path is paved for us in love and in generosity for us. Joseph's 
confidence in God's love and care for him allows him to accept that miscarriage of justice that's about to happen to him. The supremacy and the sovereignty of God remains steadfast despite all the twists and turns Joseph is now wrapped up in. And so Joseph doesn't strain against the situation. He doesn't cling to his place of prominence. He doesn't call his own character up to the witness stand to testify for him to Potiphar. He's not trying to do any of that. Instead, he accepts that God is just as present as he's ever been. And so Joseph is sent to prison where the king's prisoners were kept. And as we continue reading, we find out who goes with him. So turn to me with turn with me to Genesis chapter 39, verses, it's the end of 20 there, verses 20 to 23. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Joseph has no less than he's ever had. Joseph has no less than he's ever had. These people have conspired against him. They've taken away everything that they can take away from him. And Joseph has no less than he's ever had. And so the warden, now this is interesting, right? The Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. And so the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Those lines are supposed to sound familiar to us. They directly reflect what happened to Joseph when things were going really well for him, right? When Potiphar discovered that the Lord was with Joseph, he gave him success. Whenever the Bible repeats something like this, we're meant to pay attention, to listen carefully to what is being said. And in this case, we can't help but notice the sovereignty of God over the whole situation. We can't help but notice that there is a straight line connecting his previous experience to the experience he's now having with everything stripped away from him. He's stuck in prison, and yet God is still right there with him. And the power of God is revealed not in that he orchestrates Joseph's life to such a degree that he knows no pain or experiences no hardship. The power of God is demonstrated in his life in that he brings good out of the very worst that life has to throw at Joseph. Joseph being sent to prison is not God saying, this is, this is a good and right thing that should happen to Joseph. It's not his seal of approval on the actions and behavior of Joseph's brothers. And it's not his seal of approval on the actions of Potiphar's wife. Instead, it's a demonstration of God's sovereignty and involvement in these otherwise desperate times. And we see once again that for him who holds all the weights in his bag, no human verdict will stand as final. We see this demonstrated powerfully in Joseph's story, but there is no more powerful account of it than in the story of Jesus. Now, every, every time, Joseph just keeps pointing us forward, right? You want to talk about a miscarriage of justice. You don't need to look no further than the person of Christ. Joseph, is, his story is pointing us forward to the Savior, to the true, to the true hero who, who would go through all of these things, who would go through the darkest of dark places for us and on our behalf. In the same way that God acts powerfully through Joseph's miscarriage of justice to save him, God acts even more powerfully through the miscarriage of justice done to Christ in order that we might be saved. When life was at its darkest, when all of Christ's friends had abandoned him, and while he hung alone on the cross, 
that was when Christ was winning. That was when, when the best, the biggest win of all humanity was happening. It was at our lowest moment. When there was no light to be had, the greatest light shone out onto the world for all eternity. And it made an everlasting change for us. When the people Christ came to save, sentenced him to death, and nailed him onto the cross, Christ was winning. Christ embodied wisdom. There has only ever been one who has had all the weights in his bag. And regardless of how weighty our life stacks up against us, this truth about who God is remains unchanged. There is a straight path. Not only is this a beautiful reality for Christ, but this is a beautiful reality for us. He has carved a straight path through the greatest injustice humanity could conjure up. Through the most awful thing that we could do, through the darkest, the darkest moment in human history, God paved a path of forgiveness and of love and of kindness to us. And he has invited us to walk on that path. In Matthew 7.13, Christ encourages us with these words. Look at that, right? Completely forgotten all of my slides. Oh boy. In Matthew 7.13, Christ encourages us with these words. He says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. This may sound like a warning, and if it serves as a warning to you, that's probably for the better, I suppose. But it's also an invitation. It's an invitation because there is, there is a path of simplicity. We are being invited to live lives of wisdom. Christ himself is this narrow gate. Life is confusing and people are insane. Jesus isn't calling us out of this. He's calling us through it. It is an extension of his love for us that he is joining us in that confusion and he is offering us sanity. The offer of his love is better than any other offer. And it is such a beautiful invitation for us. And I would encourage each of you to consider how we, how we resolve our own conflicts in life. Where do we go? How do we, how do we find wisdom to get through these complicated things? Do we turn to what the Bible has for us? Do we turn to the words of life that we might follow them on this path? Or do we turn to our own devices? I would encourage you, not out of fear of what might happen otherwise, but out of the beauty of what could happen if we could give our lives to Christ, if we could come to know wisdom, if we could come to, to read and digest and live by this word, this path of life and peace, that we might walk on that narrow path and through that small gate that is the beauty of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you that you have provided a way. Thank you for your goodness and your love to us. Thank you that there is no darkness that you will not walk through with us. Thank you that we have no need of fear. Thank you that you will never abandon us and leave us. Thank you that you have made wisdom possible, Lord. Would you open our hearts to know it, to understand it, to receive it, and to walk in it. We ask in your son's name. Amen.